0: Well hey everyone, uh, my name is Matt, so great to be able to spend a little bit of time with you today getting into the word. I've been a part of the street community here for eight or nine years, yeah, predominantly um, part of night at the moment. And I want to, tell to you start off today by telling you a story about making coffee. Uh, We had a friend move in with us recently and she's got like this proper fancy bells and whistles coffee machine. And Up to this point we've kind of had the plunger or the Nespresso coffee, both of which don't really have any requirement for knowing particularly how to use it, you kind of just press the button or follow the simple process but I was keen to learn how to use this proper new coffee machine so my friend was giving me a rundown of how do you make a good coffee with this machine. And she's saying things like, you know, you you grind the beans, you you got to make sure you temp the coffee to the right level. And the thing that I'm still working on after a week or so is the milk, right? There's a certain temperature to get the milk, there's a certain um, time to do the milk, and there's a technique to make sure that the milk gets nice and smooth and creamy. And she was saying, you know, we kind of run the coffee machine through a little bit once you're done using it and clean it up so that it's good to go for the next person. And so she showed me once and then after that it was up to me to do it for myself. And at this stage there's kind of any number of changes that I could make to the suggested process. right? There's adaptations to what I was told to do that I could choose if I wanted. I could do the milk for less time or more time or a higher temperature or a lower temperature. I could think, you know what, there's a, there's a water shortage on it at the moment, so instead of using tap water into the machine, I'm going to have this water that I've just got in a bucket from outside and put that into the machine. But the consequences of, of any of these alterations to the process would be that I'd have a worse coffee and or a worse experience of making the coffee. The point being that, that adhering to what I was taught will produce for me the best possible outcomes. Today we're continuing on in our wholehearted series and we're going to look at wholehearted obedience. Wholehearted obedience. You know, for, obedience for many of us is an icky word. It's an uncomfortable word. Obedience makes me think of, of the children's book Matilda and the character um, Mrs. Trunchbull and her chokey, A really boarding school, authoritarian type of character. Um, We live in an anti-authoritarian culture that, that tries and places immense value on having as few as possible external forces acting on our lives. Lots of people will believe that what's true for one person might not be true for the next and therefore no one is really well placed to say that anything is right or wrong or what we should be doing. And yet when we look at Scripture, we see wholehearted obedience. We see the hearing and the doing of God's word as a clear and critical commandment throughout. And so those of us who want to follow Jesus or are contemplating what living in the way of Jesus might mean are faced with a challenge, are faced with a tension. We can't obey both our cultural moments of everything just sticking to our own beliefs about what might be right, of self-determination, of complete independence, with a God who says, this is how you should live. And so today I want to look at why wholehearted obedience? What does Scripture say about obedience? Why is that of value to our lives? And how does obedience relate to us experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus brings? And the headline for today is this. Wholehearted obedience is in our best interests. I don't know if this is what you always do when faced with an intellectual dilemma, but I'm going to go to some ancient poetry. We're going to go to Psalm Psalm 119, verses 33 to 40, and this is what the psalmist writes about wholehearted obedience. They say, Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. And your righteousness preserve my life. So this is a passage that sits among a much larger psalm that celebrates the gift of the word of God and holding it up as a dependable guide to life. And the writer uses words like decrees, commands, statutes, precepts. These are all synonyms for God's word. And what stuck out to me was that the psalmist or the writer of this passage seems to see a very clear connection between the knowing, understanding, and applying of God's word and seeing good outcomes in their life. They write things like this He says, Teach me, give me understanding, so that I may obey it with all of my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Preserve my life according to your word. Take away the disgrace that I dread, for your laws are good. And so, this is a prayer of request to God for assistance in being wholeheartedly obedient. A prayer not born primarily out of of love or worship, although I'm sure those are involved, but born out of the observation that the hearing and the doing of God's word will produce the best possible outcome. In their life, you know, it feels like the psalmist writes like someone who has just realised the benefits in their own life of of eating healthy food. I think about why is it that we command our children, why is it that we force feed our children healthy food, broccoli and carrots and the like. It's not because in that moment it's in the best interest of the parent. What I've seen is that I think it would be much easier in any given moment to feed our children McDonald's or cake than it would be broccoli or vegetables. But the parent commands the child to eat vegetables because they know that a diet of McDonald's or cake is going to leave this child unhealthy and immobile, not well placed to maximise or experience fullness of life. And so despite the protests arising from a child's limited perspective, the vegetables are actually in their best interests. And so in a way, this feels a little bit uh, self-centered, maybe a little bit me oriented for church, saying that, saying that obedience is in our best interests. So I thought, what does Jesus have to say about this? Well, Jesus uses an illustration around obedience that for many of us will be familiar. He teaches his kind of, he finishes his key teachings that we call the Sermon on the Mount, his outline for how we should live as followers of Jesus by contrasting two house builders. The most influential person of all time finishes his most important teaching saying this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? and do not do what I say. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. So we have two house builders. Both of the builders hear the word of God and both of these builders' houses experience the storm and the floods coming onto them. But the distinction is that one of the builders has put the word of God into practice and the other one has not. And so the meaning of the parable or the outcome of the parable is that the person who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice still has a house following the storm. The one who hears the words of Jesus but does not put them into practice no longer has a house and has wasted a bunch of time and money building a house that no longer exists. The distinction is that both hear the word, but only one does. Uh, It's interesting that that the same illustration is recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Here Jesus describes the two builders um, using Greek words that we translate into English as wise and foolish. Um, But these words did not speak so much to the moral goodness or the moral qualities of the two builders, but rather more to their intelligence, to their decision-making, Capacity. In fact, the word that uh, we translate as foolish is the Greek word moras, um, out of which comes the English word moron. As with the majority of Jesus' teachings, it's important here to remember that, that this is a discussion about how to live once we are saved, not a teaching on how to be saved. We know that our salvation is not conditional on our obedience. But we can see from the emphasis of Jesus' teachings that salvation is only the first step in a much longer journey of life with Christ, of life in the kingdom of God. And it seems fairly clear that both the psalmist and Jesus are positioning obedience to the word, the hearing and the doing, as the best option for life. And that obedience is most beneficial to the person being obedient. And so for me, these claims kind of raise a key question, and that's this. Why is it that the hearing and the doing, the putting into practice the Word of God, is the best option for life? What's the rationale behind a statement like that? Well, I think God has has two key distinguishing characteristics that mean being obedient to Him is much different than being obedient to any other kind of entity or being. We know this about God. We know that number one, God has full knowledge and God has complete and evidenced love. God has full knowledge. God knows everything about how we are created, how we work best and what the consequences of different actions and decisions will be. He does, he does not lack any information that would prevent him from coming to the best possible conclusion on any given subject. And so we can think about my, my coffee example, and we don't even have to step outside of the illustration to make the point, right? Like, no one has made more, seen more coffee being made than what God has. Um, we could think that that the, the teacher, the human teacher who taught me how to make coffee, they might not be the greatest coffee teacher of all time, right? And so if there was someone else who knew more about making coffee than them and their two kind of thoughts contradicted, it would make sense to believe the person who had the most information about making coffee and therefore act on their suggestion rather than the lesser teacher. But we know that, that, that God has witnessed every coffee ever being made. He was there before coffee existed. He made the coffee bean. He understands the science and why a good coffee is a good coffee. He has complete and full information. And so the most trustworthy source on how to make a good coffee is God. And we can stretch that out, the same logic, to any situation in our life. God has full knowledge. But not only does God have, have full knowledge, but he has complete and evidenced love. We know that, that scripture says God is love. It's a core aspect of his being. He is fully loving to the extent that we know he could not suggest or command anything in his word that was not fully loving of us. And not only is God fully loving um, in theory, or in, in, we have this idea, but he has demonstrated his love for us In the most complete way. He has substantiated and evidenced his love for us through the giving of his son to take on the consequences of our sins so that we could experience fullness of eternal life with him. And you know, I could think maybe my coffee teacher doesn't have my best interests at heart. Maybe they thought I don't actually want him to use the coffee machine, so I'm gonna teach him badly, so that therefore he has a bad coffee, doesn't enjoy making coffee, and just leaves the machine for me to use by myself. But we can very much be confident that God, given the extent to which he has already demonstrated his love for us, does in fact have our best interests at heart when he gives a commandment or an outline of how we should live. So we know that God has full knowledge and he has complete and evidenced love. To, to tie some of these ideas up, I, I, I read a quote by Dallas Willard and he said this, Plainly, in the eyes of Jesus, There is no good reason for not doing what he said to do. For he only tells us to do what is best. And so I think while we can recognize the benefits to self of obedience, in practice, true wholehearted obedience moves immediately beyond self interest to being an act of love. You know, the first action of someone who is wholeheartedly obedient, who does apply the word of God, is to love. To love God with every aspect of their being and to love their neighbor as themselves. This is what Jesus said is the ultimate commandment that we discussed last week. And I think that obedience directly intersects with love and that practicing the word of God becomes in the best interests of everyone involved. I think it speaks to God as as a designer. He designed this cohesive system for humanity and life where what is best for me is also what is best for God and is also what is best for my neighbor. I think we understand love and obedience come together in this. Love and obedience are not self-serving But they are dispositions that ultimately serve the self best. Furthermore, we know a couple more things about love and obedience coming together. We know that that God receives our obedience as an active expression of our love for him. And that Jesus highlighted living in alignment with God's design for our life as critical to being present to and attuned to the love of God in our everyday life. use use the illustration of the vine and the branches in John 15 to discuss this. And I'm conscious that I've really emphasized today the why behind obedience, and I've left very little time for the how. How do we become wholeheartedly obedient? Well, I want to try to answer it in, in, in one sentence, in that how we become wholeheartedly obedient is a lifetime of practicing the way of Jesus. And falling back to the limitless grace of God when we stuff up, which we all will. And I think the goal of obedience is not to become completely obedient. I think that won't happen until we experience the resurrection, until we're born once more fully restored in Christ. And so I think for now the goal is a trajectory of growing obedience. And I want to finish with a story that that might highlight for each of us maybe what our next step in obedience to God is. And so we read that there was was a young, popular, wealthy man who asked Jesus, Teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And here eternal life, as often throughout um, the New Testament, refers more to the quality of life rather than quantity of years. He's not necessarily asking just, what is the bare minimum to be saved? But how can he receive and experience fullness of life? Jesus responds by saying, keep the law. And the man says, well, I already do that. And Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Gift the proceeds to the poor. And come follow me. It's recorded that the man went away feeling sad. It seems that he wasn't willing to be obedient with his finances. He wasn't willing to be obedient in this one area. But I think this man missed the fact that Jesus wasn't wanting to deplete his life by taking away his resources. But he was calling, to have a, he was calling him to have a richer experience of life by removing the attachment that money has on his heart. You know, we've been talking today reasonably conceptually, we've been talking about um, making coffee or or eating broccoli, eating healthy foods. But the rubber really hits the road in this conversation when we start to think through our habits or our attitudes or our actions or our decision-making. Those moments in in day-to-life where we either move towards obedience or away from it. Jesus identified money as the area that was most robbing this man from experiencing fullness of life. And I, I want to I just provide a couple of questions that maybe will help you reflect on, on what the next step of obedience for you this week and as we move out of here is. The first question is this. Which area of your life would you most benefit from being obedient in? Or to ask maybe a a slightly more pointed way, but what is actually, in an underlying sense, a very similar question. Why does Jesus ask you, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I say? What is the area of obedience that you could grow in to bring yourself fullness of life, to experience the fullness of eternal life that Jesus offers to us? I think we're all going to need help in this area and, and God says that he'll provide that. And so let's pray to close off um, yeah, as we move out of here. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we want to share in, in the psalmist's psalmist. Um, joy in the gift of your word, Lord. Lord, would you help us to, to know the word, to understand it and to apply it, Lord? We want to be not just hearers, but, but doers of the word. And so, yeah, I pray through your spirit you'll be empowering our, our community to, to chase after wholehearted obedience, Lord. Yeah, I pray that, that as we spend time with you, as we're um, connected to the vine, as you told us to be, that, that you would meet us there and, and enable us to, to live in alignment with your kingdom and the plans that you have for us. Yeah, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.